Well, you can open, uh, if you're there already, otherwise open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm still going. This microphone is still on. Can we just mute this one? Cheers, man. All right, so we have, uh, we've seen lots of problems coming up through the, the Corinthian church. It's been um, quite an experience reading their mail from Paul. And of course, this letter was, was spread around to all of the other churches in the area. So um, that would have been quite an embarrassing experience. All, of course, though, to the, to the glory of God. And what we've seen Paul do is, and if you're not, you've, you haven't been with us, just uh, you can go back and find all of our teaching on this series and others on the Hope Church app which you can download or on our YouTube and Facebook. But, but what we've been seeing happen is Paul address a problem and, and bring it in light of the gospel, how a solution can come about with the ultimate purpose of giving the glory away from us, away from our prestige and our wisdom and the world and giving it back to where it rightfully belongs, which is to God in Christ Jesus. We have seen back from... The first chapter until the 10th chapter, we have seen disunity become an issue, which Paul has seen that there is a solution in it that can bring the glory back to God. We saw also that there was issues of, <clears throat> of uh, not just division, but, but preferring certain leaders and giving glory to people. And he saw that there is a, a solution that can be found to give the glory back to God. This has been his major concern and continual premise. There's an issue in the church. How can this be solved to give glory to God? When there was an embarrassment about the doctrine of the crucifixion, his question was, how can we work through this to display the glory of God? There was disrespect of leaders in the church. How can we work through this to display the glory of God? There was sexual sin, even incest and um, and, uh, and the visiting of prostitutes. And Paul's question was, how can we work through this so as to give the glory to God? There was legal battles happening between members. They were fighting each other, trying to steal each other's money and homes over little petty issues. And Paul's question was, how can we work through this to the glory of God? There was crises and confusions in marriage. His question was, how can we work, I'm not sorry for the repetition, how can we work through this to give glory to God? There was arguments about how involved the church should be in the culture, how much we can take on the looking like the culture as we're trying to reach them. And there's really, the, the, those are differences in ministry philosophy. Well, Paul's question was, how can we work through this to display the glory of God. And most recently, we've seen how some of the Corinthians were engaged in idol worship. And the question of Paul was, how can we work through this sin of idol worship in order to give glory back to God alone? In other words, Paul's end goal for Christians, and what we need to have in ourselves, the end goal that is the end goal of all end goals, the ultimate desire and motivation for every one of us as individuals, as families, and as a church is how can we do whatever we are doing, whether it's solving problems or breaking new ground, how can it be done to give God his worth, his value, his deserving glory? That is the great question on the, on the front of the apostle's mind in the front of every biblical Christian's mind. How can we give glory to God? Can you go with me to verse 31 of chapter 10? I'm going to read this for us, this short section, and we will begin unpacking it tonight. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the living God. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. May God bless the reading of his holy, inspired Bible this evening. If you weren't here this morning, 
you missed that we say amen after that now. We're not a a real vocal, happy, chappy bunch in the Reformed Baptist world, but we amen Bible. So when I say, may the Lord bless to us the reading and preaching of his inerrant scripture, add whatever adjectives we might throw in there, uh, your response is a hearty amen. So let's give it a try. May God bless the reading and preaching of his inerrant word of God to us this evening. That's good. It makes me feel like you're helping me out. That's good. That's what I want. All right, so let's start digging in, because as we look here, we need to realize this is a very generalizable passage. You might have heard this text, as, and it's only half a sentence is half quoted. You've often heard probably, do all to the glory of God, whatever you do. And, and, and it's a sort of text that can be taken out of its context, but it's one of the only Swiss Army knife verses in Scripture. There is lots of verses, when you strip it from its context, they make no sense and they're horribly abused. This is not one of them. People whip this one out of its context all the time, and we'll see why. It's in the context of, of saying whether or not you're allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Not a really easily con- contextualizable verse or context. Right, And so it doesn't really go well as a bumper sticker or a tattoo or an Instagram bio verse. However, it holds its meaning. We're going to look at the context and the specifics early on in the passage, but we're really just going to start unpacking what this means to every area of our life. What does it mean to do all to the glory of God? Whether we are eating or drinking or anything else, what does it mean? So we, we want to see first in the original context. Let's be honest and fair to what Paul was initially meaning. And in verse 31, when he says, do all to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, he is, of course, coming off, as we said, the context of answering the question, can Christians eat meat that was formerly uh, used in idol sacrifice? And his answer was, sure, that's, that's fine, you can do that. There's, there's nothing demonic about the meat that's going to get you spiritually sick. And yet the other question was, well, does that also mean, since demons are really powerless against Christians if we're in Christ, does that mean we can just go into their temples, sing their songs, wave their incense, and engage in the worship? Because it's just a party for us. We're not worshiping demons. Paul said, no, you have to keep clear from the engagement in those kind of activities. However, his overarching purpose has been whatever you're going to do and this is where Paul and the New Testament in general is quite general not vague but general in a lot of the principles it lays down because God and his sovereignty knew that the Christian church was not just going to be a Greco-Roman first century church it was going to be a Nigerian 1980s church and a China 1920s church and an Australia 2021 Church. It was going to have so many different manifestations that it's going to look like so many different things. And so God uses first century contexts to give eternal principles, and that's what we're reading tonight. So Paul wraps up his discussion around idolatrous feasts and what food you can touch or not by saying, Christian, your ultimate motivation. And if this is set right, everything else is pulled into line. Your ultimate motivation needs to be at every juncture, can I glorify God more by doing this action, whatever it is, than I can by doing that action? Always at the head of the Christian motivation is giving the maximal glory to God that he is owed. So let's look at a very specific context. There's the general. Whatever you do, give glory to God. But of course, it's specific because he's saying... He's talking about the eating and the drinking. But then he's going to say in verse 32, what it looks like to glorify God in what you choose to eat or not is not giving offense to Jews or Greeks, they're the unsaved world, or to the church of God. So first of all, if we're going to glorify God in how we do anything, but but eat and drink, Paul's first application means, and he's just summarizing the last chapters here, He's saying, don't do anything that's going to put unnecessary blocks or, or, or stoppages in, in a, by offending people so that they don't listen to Christians because you're doing something so culturally disgusting that they can't understand. Do everything you can to remove those obstacles, the, uh, number one. Number two, he's going to say down in verse 33, 
uh, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. So we see that the, the next way to glorify God in everything that you do is to seek their ultimate pleasure and good, not momentary pleasures, not momentary goods, right? He says there, I seek to please everybody in everything I do. Not meaning he's a chameleon, he's a two-faced people pleaser. He's meaning I'm aiming at their ultimate pleasure to do everything I can to bring them to the ultimate good of knowing God in Christ through the gospel. So that's the second part. First is not to offend people unnecessarily or step on the consciences of my brothers and sisters in the church. Secondly, it is to do all that I can to aim at people's salvation. And thirdly, it is a, a willingly, we see this in the rest of verse 3, a willing giving up of my own rights and liberties for the sake of the mission of saving souls. So verse 33 ends up saying, uh, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So to Paul, doing anything and everything to the glory of God means doing it in light of and in the direction of the great commission mandate given to every Christian alive today. So we need, we need to tie together, therefore, the glory of God and the success of the church's mission in, in the Great Commission. Well, we should not be those who, who simply want to sit back in our lounge chair and do nothing for the church, do nothing for the gospel, do nothing in what we say or speak or share or use whatever we can to preach the gospel. We're not allowed to be those who claim to care anything about the glory of God because we're theologians if we are not hands getting dirty, knees bent in prayer, serving the purpose of the church, preaching the gospel to the lost. The, the, the work of the church on the Great Commission and the glory of God in Paul's mind are the same desire. I want many to be saved so that God can be glorified. And I want God glorified more so that the praise of more can occur. These two things are married in Paul's mind. And one question that might be popping up in some of our minds is, are you saying that the glory of God the glory of somebody else, the, the, the so self-centered glory of him should be everybody else's main desire. And that is precisely what I am saying. It is precisely what Paul says. It's precisely the point of the entire scriptures that the glory of God is owed to him and the greatest motivation and aim that any of us can have. So, Romans 11 verse 36 shows that not only our motivation should be the glory of God, but our motivation should be the glory of God because God's motivation in everything he does is the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things, everything, everything created, every event, every person, every sin, every good action, everything in the universe is from him, for him, to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. So, so here we see the, the how the world exists and anything exists. The how is by God or from God and through God. He created and began it all, and he's sustaining it. But we also get the why, God. Why does the world exist? That's a good question. It'll answer the question as to why you exist. Why does Australia exist? Why does history happen the way it happens? Why does anything exist at all when God in his triune perfection could have not created anything if he wanted and been as perfectly happy because he didn't get anything when he made us? Only a whole lot of cleaning up to do. What is the purpose of the world? We see it here. It's from God and through God. It's also to God and for his glory forever. Amen. But there's more verses here. We see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, he says, in speaking of the world, speaking of Christ and the world, he says, 
he speaks of Christ as, as he for whom and by whom all things exist. So that everything exists by Jesus. He made it all. It's from him, but it's also for him. The world has been made to ultimately give glory to Jesus. We'll see in Colossians 1.16, again talking of Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and three very important words, and for him. All things have been made by Jesus, ultimately for the purpose of glorifying him. Isaiah 48, verse 11, when God is speaking through that prophet as to why he was going to be gracious and forgive the people of Israel. He says, for my own sake. And he repeats it because we didn't hear it. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's ultimate purpose in all that he has made and is doing is bringing it all back to give him glory. In fact, when Jesus speaks in John 16 verse 14 of the Holy Spirit, he says that the Holy Spirit will come. He will glorify me. So, so it is God's overarching purpose to bring glory to himself. It is even the intra-Trinitarian work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to bring glory to themselves, primarily to Jesus Christ, ultimately to God the Father through Christ. We'll get there. We'll go through all the specifics later. The ultimate motivation at the heart of God, if you could look into there, if we could peel it all back and see what is ultimately motivating God, it is the desire for him to be glorified, made much of, worshipped in his splendor. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in America who led one of the, uh, was one of the main leaders of the Great Awakening uh, in America between the 1730s and 1740s a few years ago. And in those decades, he wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World, or The Purpose for Which, The Motivation for Which God Created the World. In today's speak, why God make the world? That's, that's his book. And he wrote it all about being, and it's this tremendous book, logic-filled, scripture-filled. And he argues that the glory of God is the end for which God created the world. He said, All that is ever spoken of in the Scriptures as the ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. In speaking of God, he says, God loves and esteems, that is to think very highly of, he loves, this is why self-esteem is demonic, you don't need self-esteem, don't esteem yourself. Believe what God says of you in Scripture. Don't, don't be conceited and filled with wonderful thoughts of yourself. Have a biblical self-image, but don't have self-esteem. But God has self-esteem because he's worthy of self-esteem. Has an infinite self-esteem. Edward says, God loves and esteems his own excellence. He says, he values the glory of his own nature. God values the glory of his own nature, and he testifies a supreme respect to himself. This self-glorification is morally right. right? It's not wrong that God is set on his own glory because God is worthy in himself, Edward says, to be so respected, being infinitely the greatest and best of beings. So it is good, it is right, and it is righteous to give glory to God, and that applies first to God. His motivation is ultimately his own glory. The glory of God is his, his fame, his reputation, his renown, his value, his worth, his honor, his beauty, and his holiness. And Paul is telling us this evening that this reality... The fact that God's motivation is ultimately towards his glorification, 
that needs to bleed down the line. That needs to be passed on through the spiritual genetics and through the word preached to us, his children. Our motivation in all things and our highest desire and goal ought to be without any resistance or reluctance because it just seems self-centered. We need to be all about giving all the glory to God in as much as we possibly can. The glory of God is what the world needs. We should ask the question, go to Romans chapter 3, greatest chapter in the Bible. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says to us something very key about God's glory and our sin and how they relate. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We're picking it up right in the middle of the sentence, so forgive me for that. Limited time. Apparently you like less than one hour sermons. That's all right, we'll get there. He says in verse 23 that all have sinned, and he's sort of defining sin here now for us, fall short of the glory of God. Now, I don't know if, you, if you're somebody who shares the gospel and uses this as a go-to verse as saying, you know, you're not as, you, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that's sin uh, and so God will punish us. And, and that's, that's fair, but in your mind, what's the connection? Uh, many people will think, um, well, to explain that verse, to not get punishment, to have not sinned, means that we would have been as glorious of God as God. And if we could measure up to the glory of God in our own glory, we would not have fallen short of that glory. But we cannot do that. That is not the meaning of the text nor the design of God in man. We were never meant to match the glory of God. We were meant to rightly see and respond to and, and, and image the glory of God. So that to fall short of the glory of God, which is sin is not being less glorious than God, which we always forever will be, but it means that where the glory of God is put on display, we see it, we despise it, we reject it, and we do not live in a way that rightly reflects that glory to other people and to God himself. So that sin is the seeing but denying and despising and refusing to copy the glorious beauty of God's own nature. So this means that wherever and whenever we fail to give all glory to God perfectly, we are in a state of sin. Which means we will be sinning until we die. Until you're in heaven, perfectly free from sin, you will always be doing something that is not ultimately to the absolute maximal of God's pleasure and his glory, meaning we, in other words, you need grace till the day you die and praise be to the Lord that he pours it out richly in Jesus for all of us. But here we are, here we are realizing that the very definition of sin refers to God's glory. We can also look at chapter 1, verse 23. This is a, a, a common uh, a connection to make between God's glory, Romans 1, 23 and 3, 23. Romans 1.23 says, starting in 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is anybody that is outside of Christ. Anybody that doesn't worship God through Christ is claiming to be wise but really foolish. One of the things that the world does in their folly is they exchange, verse 23, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and dollar signs and sex. Man's right response to the glory of God is to worship. And idolatry, the the twisting of the human heart towards creation, is not just getting the picture of God wrong. Like if you drew a, a guy with a beard, you would have been okay. The problem is that it's taken the glory of God, which is immortal and insurpassable and and insurmountable and, and infinite, glorious. It's taken that, refused to bend in worship to it and put back in the place of our affections and our worship, our bank account, our children, our goals in life, our pleasure and sin and what other people say and think about us. It is to worship as ultimate anything other than the infinite God. This is the very definition of sin. 
So, so that to say, it is worthwhile for us to really dig into this question, how do we give glory to God in all things? It is of ultimate significance. When we say, let us just clarify this, when we say we're giving glory to God, we need to be sound in our theology and sound in how we think. We're not saying that God is at about a good 90% glory capacity. And every time you sing a song or you give a cash offering or you, you help somebody, you do something to God's glory, it tops him up. And that's, that's refilling his fuel tank. And then he'll save somebody, he'll go back down a couple of percents and we need to worship him a little bit more like he's a, a street fighter character whose health drops and raises. No, God is in himself infinitely perfect unneeding of anybody else or anything else to serve him. He doesn't need us. We don't increase his glory. This is the difference between, some of us were, 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 were talking of this at one of the fellowship groups a couple of weeks ago, the difference between the intrinsic glory of God and the ascribed glory of God. When God created literally millions of angels to worship him as a chorus he did not do that to increase his glory. He did that to, to receive the ascribing of the glory to himself. He, he is glorious. He made us to ascribe glory back to him because that is where it deserves to be. He is who deserves to have it. We're not topping God up. We are simply reflecting. Think, think of the sun and a mirror. You never increase the amount of photons in the air when you reflect it backwards through a mirror. You just send it back. You send it out. You, you take it, instead of going underneath a, a lamp or a rock or something, you're spreading it back out. So it is with the glory of God. We don't add to it. We catch it. We reflect it to the world. So, the Westminster Confession of Faith sort of the Presbyterian version, very bad copy. Presbyterian, they did it before we did. It would look like they, they just jimmied the dates. We had ours first, 1689. Uh, uh, the, the Presbyterian uh, Confession of Faith has as, uh, as one of the, the standards that they have and teach through since those 1600s is called the Catechism, which basically just means question and answer. Some of you are raised on that. The rest of us won't. Um, but, but what they do is they teach their kids... And before you're 13, you're supposed to have this down pat, 172 or so question and answers that you can say about the theology of the Word of God. And the very first one, this is just a really handy teaching tool, uh, the very first question that they ask their children and, and, and each other and adults in Sunday school classes, they would ask, number one, what is the chief end of man? That's funny language, chief just meaning head, highest, uh, most, most overruling ultimate thing? What is the chief end? What's the ultimate purpose and design of man? And the answer, I think, beautifully and biblically is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He wants you to enjoy Him. He's glorified by you enjoying Him. But his, his, our design, our purpose on earth is to give glory and enjoy the glory of God. And so tonight we want to dig a little bit more into what exactly that means. So let's ask the question now, how do I glorify God in my life? We've looked at all the, what, what it means, what, what the, the big idea is, but how do you and me leave these doors, get in the car and start glorifying God by how we turn the ignition? and how we talk to our kids, or how we order our food, or how we, we sit down with other Christians, or how we drop the kids off at school, or how I go and uh, uh, put in a uni assignment, or help a, 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 a patient at work. It's all interconnected. Where does this fit? How do I glorify God in my life? I want to look at the principles at play in this passage. Number one, this is going to be gleaning from the last few chapters of 1 Corinthians. Number one is flee from actual instances of sin. Flee from sin. This is, of course, you're going to hear this and, and say, if you were less respectful, you'd say, duh, pastor, of course, you can't glorify God by sinning. But, but let's ask why. Because we, we can get into a, a legalistic mindset, even if we're thinking we're saved just by faith alone. We can get into ruts of thinking that are unhelpful and saying, if I sin, I will be happy, but God will be angry. 
And if I don't sin, God will be happy, but I will be sad. Till I die, amen. This is the Christian life. And what, what we need to realize is that the reason the glory of God needs to be our motivation in obedience and fleeing of sin and temptation is because what you do with your life says to the world, and this sounds a little bit hyper-spiritualized, but Paul gets to it, it says to those around us and to the demons and the angels and to God himself, the way we live our life is saying, your commands are good or they are terrible. You being a master is tremendous or you're a terrible master, God. Your design is good or your design is flawed and pathetic and does not lead to the flourishing of your creatures. That is what sin says. It says, like Eve in the garden, listening to the devil, as he said, he tr you give God some grace, okay? He tried really hard. He's got to run this thing, and so he makes some rules. He's overstepped the mark. We can be patient with him. He just doesn't want you getting a bit too close to real happiness, freedom, and godliness. So just take the fruit, have it. It's all good. He, he doesn't make good rules. He doesn't make good laws. It's not connected to who he is and what his heart is towards you. And yet here we are realizing that to glorify God is to flee from sin because in doing that, in pursuing righteousness, we are saying... God's rules are not just good because they don't get us punished. God's rules are a blessing. Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. Psalm 1, blessed is he who, who day and night meditates on the words of the Lord, who does not sit with scoffers or lay down with, with the sinners, who does not walk with the fools, but one who, who stands. He's like a tree, Psalm 1 tells us. The tree is not limited and sad because it has to have water. No, it, it flourishes according to the rules of biology that tells it, suck up all the nutrients of this water. It bears fruit, its leaves are in season, and it's a blessing to all that live around it. And so it is with sin and the glory of God. We're also told in, in Psalm 119 that the prayer comes out of his lips, lead me in the paths of righteousness. There's a there's a hunger for that life of God's commandments because it brings blessing to us and glory to God. But going back through 1 Corinthians, can you go to chapter 6 with me? In verse 18, right? So, so remember, we're asking how do we glorify God in our lives? And number one is to flee instances of actual, explicit sin. So in speaking of sexual sin, in verse 18 of chapter 6, he says... Flee from sexual immorality. That's, that's, it's sin. You cannot glorify God by doing it. Do not let yourself be tempted thinking, I know it's sin, but my heart's in the right place. We really love each other, or I'm sure they'd want me to do this anyway. We cannot glorify God by walking against his revealed scriptures. Then look at verse 20. The last sentence there says, So... Glorify God in your body. Those two things are opposite. Sexual immorality and glorifying God in your body are opposite. Flee the one, pursue the glorifying of God in your body. And you can also look at chapter 10, verse 14. A little bit of bouncing around tonight. 10, verse 14, he says, There, in the instance of idolatry, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So, of course, this is very simple. I've taken a while to make the point. That's just who I am. I'm, I'm sorry. But number one, to glorify God means fleeing from sin. It is, not, um, um, uh, it is not able to lead us to a life that glorifies God. But number two, this one is where it gets a little bit more black and white, the reason why they needed to write a letter to Paul. Now he's saying, flee from permissible things that are okay. Right? Drinking certain things and eating certain things in the Corinthian example. Flee from permissible, neutral things if they are unhelpful to the spiritual walk of others. This is the second way you can glorify God in your life. Flee from things that you're allowed to do. You've got a liberty to do. You're okay in doing it's not a sin. However, it's going to get in the way of other people's spiritual walk. We glorify God by giving up those things. So we'll see in chapter 8, verse 9. 
where Paul says, take care that this right of yours, and he's speaking of eating all sorts of foods, this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I think Christians really, especially Christians with strong consciences who, who, that allow us to get away with all sorts of stuff because we know our liberties and we're right. We need to hold this verse tightly. Do not let the liberty of yours cause another to sin. Do not, do not let it become a stumbling block to the weak. Or we see down in verse 13, he says, If my food was going to make my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So that the spiritual walk of others is of high importance to the Christian who is seeking to glorify God. And we see it again in chapter 10, verse 32, precisely what we read tonight, where Paul said, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. So ask yourself tonight, you may be fleeing from sin, but are you also willing to not do what you technically could do because it's just not best for the body? Let us think about that. But thirdly, we increase the esteem and reputation and love and glory being given to God when we flee from being the... uh, uh, when we flee from being the stumbling block or blocking the road for unbelievers. And this is where it connects back to the Great Commission and seeing souls saved. We saw at the end of verse 33, he said that all of this is not just so Christians don't have their consciences stepped on. That's just secondary. Ultimately, it's that they may be saved. That the elect all around the world anywhere within my reach, may, may be used by my life of fleeing sin and sacrificing my own liberties to flee what would cause other people to sin and seeking their good that they may come to faith through me. We saw this in chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. And we're going back over all the things we've covered, seeing how it really relates, not just to how to not get in fights at church, but how to glorify God in our lives. Chapter 9, verse 12. Uh, And the second half of that verse. Nevertheless, we have not made use of our rights, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Passion for the glory of God necessitates a passion to spread it. If you claim to be passionate about the glory of God, you must be one who is passionate about spreading it. The, 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 the parable of the lamp and the basket that Jesus told tells us truth here. We, you cannot say you're glory, you are passionate about the shining of a light and so under the mattress it goes. No one else will see it. I'll store it all up and it'll just get brighter and brighter under my bed. There is no way to say, I'm, I'm just passionate about the, 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 the work of seeds and grain, and so I lock it in my cupboard to not do its work. Paul's in, uh, instruction to us is to take the passion for God's glory and realize it is married to the Great Commission, for in the salvation of a soul, God is glorified more than any other What is helpful for us to see here as we go, how do we glorify God? How do we fulfill Romans 11.36, Hebrews 2.10, Colossians 1.16? How do we do all that cosmic stuff? And our answer is flee from sin, flee from stepping on other people's consciences, and flee from uh, uh, blocking other people's ways to salvation. And we go, that just sounds so entirely boring and ordinary. When do I, I get infused with some kind of cosmic power by which I, I break this world open and establish the glory of God on earth? But friends, that's God's job. He does the cosmic, global, amazing, miraculous stuff. We are faithful in the little that we have in our life to do all that we can, ordinary, boring as it sounds, glorify God. You go home, you fight temptation, you turn off that TV screen, you, you stop 
talking about or watching something that your Christian housemate is, is really tempted by. You pray with another brother and strengthen them in their faith. You, you watch how you speak and how you work in the workplace so that your witness as a Christian might be more believable when you preach the gospel. You, you just hand out a tract. You just try and start a gospel conversation at the workplace and it's cut short because work calls. Okay, all of that, believe. It's bringing the glory of God to this world and reflecting back to him what he is worthy to receive. Trust that those seeds sown will bear their fruit in due time. What we need to, need to see here is just really specific. I've got three short points as we come to wrap up. We want to see that the glory of God is resident or is invested in, in this new covenant age, it is invested in Jesus, in the gospel, and in the church. Or in other words, where God chooses to be worshipped and marveled at for his glory is in the face of Jesus, in the truth of the gospel, and in the presence of local churches. I want to specify here because I've, I've heard multiple Sermons that sort of somehow go viral where, where, where so-called preachers will talk about, about the real glory of God, how it needs to have some kind of physical, even miraculous, tangible and palpable sense and experience in a people. And they'll say dumb phrases like, I'm just sick of just doing church. And why are we so, uh, why have we drifted from all of the, 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 the glorious things that we, used to, that we see in Scripture and now we just sit around a book and have someone explain it for half an hour? That's not true glory. Where's the glory of God? And we need to be theologically convinced that God has invested his glory not in those old things that Hebrews says are gone and done and insufficient, but in the face of Jesus in the knowledge of the gospel and in the presence of a local church. I'm going to show these. Can you go to 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter, or sorry, it was his third letter to these guys. <clears throat> Maybe even his fourth. There was a couple of lost ones, but regardless, this is his second letter that we have in Holy Scripture. Go to chapter 4. I'm going to show a couple of things from here. First of all, let's see that the glory of God is not just vague now, it is invested specifically in the person and work of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 4 and 6. So verse 4 says, he's speaking of how, of how Satan blinds unbelievers from believing the gospel. He says, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of of the gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What people see for salvation or don't see and remain damned is the, gospel, is the glory of God in, the image of, in Jesus because he's the image of God. The glory of God in Jesus, or look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's a reference to creation, he also has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God shines in the world today through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 starts out with this. It's not in angels and in miraculous displays of fire from heaven anymore. It's in Jesus. He was heaven's final messenger. He was heaven's final message. He is the culmination of the manifestation of the glory of God. That little Hebrew carpenter. Yes, he was the glory of God, which means that giving, because giving glory means seeing the attributes of God on full display and, ref, and responding to it correctly. And there was, of course, throughout Scripture, other manifestations of glory. There was the, water, the, the spirit over the waters in creation. There was the temple that was shining and golden. God has been pictured at other times as an unapproachable light. And while those things were Truly God manifesting his glory, they were unapproachable. They were not able to be related to in a way that showed all of God's attributes truly so that it could be responded to. And so Jesus came, as John chapter 1 tells us, the fullness of the glory of the Father. 
is in Jesus. And we say, well, how can we know the glory of Jesus? Good question. In the knowledge of the gospel. So look at chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verse 7 and 8. I don't have time to go into all of the details here. We have dinner afterwards, but it's suffice to say that Paul is explaining about, about, about Moses' situation back in the Old Testament. Moses went up onto the mountain. He met with God. He walked back down. His face was shining because he had seen the a small section of the glory of God. And so in order to not give fear to people, he would have a veil over his face, but also in order to hide the fact that it was fading away because glory runs out in the old covenant, he hides his face. So Paul speaks of that reality. To those who are tempted to think the old stuff had more oomph than the new covenant. Verse 7, he says, Now if the ministry of death, which is the law, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had some glory, the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. It is a reality that in our, star, in our sky at night, you can see Sinus Major, a, a, a star that is big enough to outstretch our orbit around the sun. Not, not its orbit, its body is bigger by three times the orbit that we take around the sun. Three letters, one word, big. It's enormous, this star. And yet... Of all the shining glory that it has, you don't see it in the middle of the day because a nearer, more helpful, life-giving light is close to us, which is the sun. There is a, an Old Testament shining glory, which is too far away to be helpful. Jesus comes near, and its nearness outshines the light of all other stars, covenants, and promises. The gospel of Jesus, the new covenant, outshines the Old Testament glory even with their temple and the rest. Now, secondly, look at, uh, sorry, thirdly, look at Ephesians chapter 3. It won't be much longer. Ephesians chapter 3. We're talking of the glory of God on display in Jesus, but funneled again into the truth of the gospel. So that in Paul's mind, if you stood in the temple and watched the glorious shining, or you sat in a church and heard some hick explain to you the gospel, the second instance is a greater display of the glory of God. We ought to prefer that. This, this evening, I know how unshiny this all is. This is what Moses wishes he could be a part of, and he would throw to the curb that mountaintop experience if he could know the gospel in the face of Jesus. Powerful, but here we are. Now the church as a whole the body of Jesus, those of us who know the gospel, preach the gospel, we are, as a church, like Corinth, working together in all of our sins and struggles. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul will say that it's through this church, local churches, that God shines his glory to every being in the universe. He says in verse 10, again, halfway through a sentence, so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that again, the, the clearest, the most powerful, the most tangible, on the ground display of God's glory is when sinners are transformed, saved by the blood of Christ, believing his gospel, listening to his word, and bit by bit transformed, as Paul says in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, bit by bit into the glory of God. We're not like Moses, who go to a mountain and then lose the glory when we come back. 
We come in here and every Sunday, every fellowship group, every Bible reading, every encouraging conversation, every rebuke, a little bit more glorious and more closely, and closer and closer to showing the truth, the reality of God in the world. How ordinary, how ordinary God has ordained his gospel of glory to be manifested. It's in the church. So if we have married together the, the glory of God in winning souls, we must also marry together the, the glory of God in attendance to and giving our lives to the work of the local church. So you cannot be one who is truly passionate, even knowledgeable in the first degree about the New Testament glory of God if you do not Find in the local church bunch of sinners, lots of mistakes, plenty of flaws, and through it all, the glory of God on display. As we work together to win souls, as we bear with one another, as we come together under the preaching of the word and have our lives transformed, that is the glory of God. So as we wrap up, let us ask this question. Has Jesus, the beaten crucified and killed Messiah, has he taken your punishment? Have you looked to that sacrifice and said, where, where I have completely failed to make, uh, to, to, to make it up to the standard of, of what God's glory demands, perfect life, utterly devoted love to him. If you failed that, then Jesus is your only option. He is the greatest grand savior that, that you need to come to him. Let him take from you your sin and give to you his righteousness, perfection, and glory. In him be justified, saved from the punishment, saved from condemnation, and freed to live a new transformed life. Number one, do you have faith in Jesus in the gospel? That is the glory of God. Have you, secondly, begun to live the new life of, number one, fleeing sin, number two, not uh, uh, putting, uh, sorry, intentionally putting others before yourself, and number three, in the motivation of winning souls. Has that been the style, the, the motivation, the direction of your life? And if it has not been, then friends, the most practical and uh, application that we can finish on tonight is to be going about intentionally spreading the glory of the gospel to people, in evangelism, and joining or becoming more intentionally joined to the church that you're in, the brothers and sisters that you are around, all to the glory of Jesus, who for our sake was buried, who for our sake took our sins into the pit of hell, who for our sake rose to give us eternal life, who for our sake has become salvation, forgiveness, and righteousness to anyone who believes. Let us pray tonight as we wrap up. <clears throat> God, without faith, this is a dead book. And without your spirit, these are dead words. Without faith, the church is an unglorious mess of people. Without the spirit, that is exactly what we become. Lord, we need faith born from you, given to us by you, and we need the spirit bringing that faith to life and obedience in order for your glory to not simply be received but hidden or even worse, not received at all, despised. We would fashion gods for ourselves out of other things and pursue them as a church, pursue them as families, pursue those things as individuals. But God, would you set up in the highest seat of our affections and in the highest motivation and priority in our life, would you set the winning of souls and the building up of the local church and therefore the glory of your son, Jesus. May you marry all of these things in our hearts so that we can pursue them and give you glory thereby. And everybody said, Amen, Amen.